Good morning. Welcome. My name is Raina Wells, and I'm Acting Director of Business Affairs and Research at the Ontario Media Development Corporation. It's my pleasure to welcome you all on behalf of OMDC to the first Digital Dialogue Breakfast session of 2017. This morning's topic is the state of content distribution. Distribution used to be fairly straightforward. There was a product, there was a distributor, and there were physical stores people went to and bought things and took them home in a bag. Or they went to a theater to see a movie, or they watched a TV show on their television, which was a very heavy box. Alternative distribution used to be when you ordered something on a catalog and it came to you in the mail. Well, that was then, this is now. Um, we've seen some really radical changes in the distribution landscape. And at OMDC, we wanted to understand more fully what has changed and to document what was going on. So we did a public tender to commission a study and Nordicity won the job. The study was released in February and the full report is available now on our website. Today, we're pleased to have Christian Roberts and Nagin Zabarjad from Nordicity here to talk about the findings. To start us off, Christian's going to take us through a presentation. We'll follow that with a 20-minute panel discussion moderated by Nagin. Our industry panelists today are Diane Hall from Two for Life and Tony Walsh from Phantom Compass. I'll leave it to Nagin to introduce them properly later on. We're going to leave about 15 minutes at the end for audience questions. We'll have a couple of people with microphones in the room. Uh, if you'd like to ask a question, please put your hand up and they'll find you. And because we always have more questions than we have time for, I'll ask that you try to keep the question part of your questions down to about 60 seconds or less if you can. Before I turn things over to Christian for his presentation, there are some people that um, I'd like to thank. Uh, first, thank you to Christian and Nagin, Diane and Tony for being here and taking the time to share your thoughts with us. Thank you also to Ariana Moscate-Frere and Lisa Fiorelli for being OMDC's project managers on this study and for doing that so well. And I wanted to say a quick thank you to the people on the OMDC team who do a really good job putting these breakfast series together, among the many other things that they do, which makes it really easy for me. They do excellent work behind the scenes. There aren't a lot of opportunities to publicly acknowledge them, so I'd like to do that now. Sherry Hills, Mae Dalquin, Sharon Wilson, Aaron Smith, Ariana Moscate-Frere, and Kevin Hare, thank you. So, Christian Roberts. Christian Roberts is a partner in Nordicity's Toronto office. Christian has developed specialized expertise related to Canadian and international strategic opportunities in the cultural media industries, and expertise in the development and use of various forms of digital media. Christian was project manager on the study. Nagin Zabarjad was the lead researcher on the project. Nagin is a manager in Nordicity's Toronto office. Her work at Nordicity focuses on the shifting landscape of the cultural media industries, and the mechanisms by which the creative economy is supported in Canada and internationally. And now, please join me in welcoming Christian Roberts. All right. Thanks, Rena. Um, just before I begin, so a little word about Nordicity. So we're a uh, uh, I guess a consulting firm specializing in the uh, creative media industries. How's my echo? Good? Good. Um, yeah, so we, we do economic strategy and policy for the creative media industries and telecommunications and ICT and all that good fun stuff. Um, so this fit, fits right into what we do. So um, yeah, let's jump into it because I don't have much time. So things to present. Uh, first of all, we're going to talk about what, what NORMBC asked us to do, if you don't already know. Um, provide a little context as to why that's important. Discuss how we, how we should play with LEGO. Um, 
trust me, it, it's important to know how to play with Lego. Uh, and then, uh, you know, have an understanding of how those Lego pieces get put together to form content, content distribution models, and then really focus on some challenges and, and, uh, and issues to consider, which uh, my colleagues on the panel will get into in more detail. Uh, chances are I will speak quickly, so you might have to refer back to that podcast to fill in things that you have missed. All right, so what were we asked to do? Basically, we were asked to do three things. One is to identify and describe how content gets from the people who own the content to the people who use the content, um, uh, both in terms, both in, in Ontario and more broadly around the world. Um, and then, of course, like what challenges and opportunities do, do those emerging and uh, shifting models present for primarily for those in Ontario context, because, of course, it is the Ontario Media Development Corporation. And thirdly, to... Um, examine relevant precedents or support, you know, support in other jurisdictions. And that is not the focus of, the, of this presentation, but will, you can find some of those relevant precedents in, our, um, uh, in the report on the OMBC's website. So very broadly, how did we go about doing that? I mean, it's the first question when I mean, you talk about content distribution. How do we whittle it down into something that you can understand, or we can understand for that matter? Um, the first is that we looked at, uh, tried to look at who does what along the chain from the person who owns the content in this case, market-ready products that are, re that are ready to get to the market, ready to be distributed, how do they get to that end user and the end user experience? Um, so we're focused, on, again, on the roles that, every, that all, the, all the people play. And of course, one, in, one individual company can play more than one role. So you can be both the content owner and maybe you know, self-publish if you're an author, as an example. Um, so we use that to define a series of building blocks, hence my Lego analogy, um, to describe those roles. And, and then identify those roles for each of the cultural media industries for which on the Ontario Media Development Corporation you know, is, is concerned. So film and television production, music, uh, magazine publishing, book publishing, interactive digital media, and uh, did I miss one? Oh, if I didn't, uh, if I did, uh, the one I missed isn't there. Uh, and for, uh, of course, then we looked for, okay, well, we're trying to understand not just what it looks like for each industry, but how, what are these content distribution models look like across the board? And in, insofar as it is possible, find overlaps between those industries so we can come up with a series of models that is, uh, as we say, industry neutral. So again, that's the basic approach that we took. Uh, the objective is to really find the fewest number of models that describe the most number of ways that content gets from its original owner to the to um, the people who actually want to consume it. So why does this matter? Um, overall, you know, we're finding that <coughs> we're, you know, the, the revenue sources for across all the creative uh, media industries are shifting from the sort of more traditional models, as Raina alluded to, to a variety of other models. So one, one sort of basic example is you see the advertising revenue shifting from where it used to be almost all towards the internet. I mean, the graph is like, you know, internet, everything else. Um, and uh, so in, in that plays out differently, of course, in different creative media, uh, cultural media industries and film and television, you see the rise of um, viewership shifting to a limited number of, of subscription video on demand services, though TV is still a strong source of, 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 of television viewership. In music, you know, you, of course, you see the rise of streaming, where streaming is overtaking downloads and every other form of music consumption. Uh, you know, SMOD, this is the subscription music on demand, I would, you could make an analogy for it. Um, in books, you know, it's not quite as, as marked. Uh, E-books didn't quite go the direction that we might have predicted five years ago, but you do see um, a shift in distribution model in that um, increasingly you see books being purchased, uh, on, physical books being purchased online as opposed to the old bookstores, which have had some struggles. And then in games, you see that uh, we've seen it very recently, uh, finally, after many years of prognostication, that digital products, uh, products are increasingly purchased on digital platforms, uh, and when there are only a few of those. I mean, if you're buying a game for your computer, there's really only one place to go, despite what our friends at uh, EA or Ubisoft might think. So, Lego. Now, I, I will admit that perhaps some of, this some of the content of this discussion is influenced by the fact that I have a two-year-old and Duplo is everywhere around my house, as I stepped on some this morning. So, we went to, uh, as I said, we went to go define some building blocks, so different color pieces of Duplo is, I guess, what we're talking about. And we ended up, after some consideration, coming to six or so um, building blocks, you know, and they're, they're some of which are kind of self-explanatory. Self the content owner, I mean, who, who owns the rights to the content um, is 
very simple. Uh, you know, sometimes there's a service provider which acts as an intermediary or, or a tech, provides technical assistance to the content owner or some other uh, building block. So they're kind of, you know, they're the, the connector piece of your, uh, of your Lego set. Um, also, there's a, you know the role of a distributor. The distributor is still present. You know, intermediary that distributes content takes a bunch of content from a variety of different sources and places it where it's more like you know best position to make money. Um, these can be digital distributors for film and TV or labels that provide distribution services in music. Uh, publishers in the video game industry all provide good examples. Um, those distributors tend to take the content and put it into retail into retail um, environments. Um, typically, those are business to end user retail environments um, that facilitate an exchange of money. So they could be Amazon.ca, Steam if you're buying video games, um, and uh, and so forth. And finally, then there's the sort of the platform provider. It should there should be an R. Apparently, my copy and paste skills are not as good as they used to be. Um, and uh, and those are where and that's where the the, the end user uh, actually accesses the content. So again, Netflix is a great example. Um, could but it could also be Spotify uh, and um, YouTube, any number of other places where the where the, the platform on which people actually access the content. And of course, is the end user, the person who the individual who actually consumes the content. So that those are all the building blocks that we're going to talk about as I start putting these models together. So I have to define what those building blocks actually look like uh, as we go through. So in the next series of slides I'm going to show you, uh, we're going to go through each of the models that we've sort of come up with uh, after some consideration and consultation. But they, they, they all kind of use these building blocks. So you've got um, you know, there are functional roles described. If they're required, if they're required for that model, they're in blue, I guess. That's what it looks like. Yep, blue. Um, they may also take on secondary functions. For instance, a distributor may also be a, a retailer, or a platform may also be a retailer, as the case, let's say, of you know, when you try to buy something on your, on your uh, Xbox, it's both the platform and the retailer. It's your point of sale as well. Um, there may also be some optional roles uh, in some of some of those uh, some of the models where a building block may be may be part of that distribution model or not, but it's not required for that uh, for that model to work. Um, I'm also going to make some comments on to which which of the cultural media industries this this uh, distribution model is more relevant. Um, it's again not to say that it's absent from from the other industries, but rather it's more prominent in those that we'll highlight. And finally, provide a couple of examples so you can understand what I'm talking about. So let's go play with Lego. And it's because the morning, not only did I provide uh, arrow instructions, but numeric instructions so we can all make sure how to, how to build our Lego blocks. Um, so model zero, the most confusing model of all, we'll start with the first one. So it, it dawned on us after a while of doing, of doing this work that um, in fact, there is a model that precedes other distribution models. And that is where you have a, um, you know, uh, some primary content owners that perhaps through a distributor sell their content to a secondary content owner, which then um, distributes it as, as you might normally have. So uh, examples we have here are so, so a music publisher selling rights for a song to a video game. So it's uh, content that then becomes part of a different piece of content that then is in, in turn commercialized. Um, you know, book, book rights uh, sold to a production company to make a movie is another good example. And again, I'm going to move through these, and uh, there will be time for questions at, at the end. And, and again, this is more or less relevant to almost all uh, cultural media industries, less prevalent in magazines. Um, one of the more one of the more sort of emerging uh, business mo uh, distribution models, and perhaps one of the more Perhaps the oldest one is just selling things to the end user. Um, so in this case, you have a content owner that is, in fact, the retailer at times. Um, so let's say you're selling something through your website. Um, I guess I don't know why I pick particular examples here, but you have, you know, so magazines selling subscriptions directly to their consumers, books, uh, books being sold on websites, bands selling CDs at a show. These are all examples of direct relationships between, you know, uh, a, a um, uh, you know, content owner and the end user. And again, this you know has some advantages in, in that you know your your uh, your client base better. But of course, then you have to manage that relationship, something that a distributor may have previously done. 
to complicate things a little more, um, you might have a content owner that through a service provider or, or not, sells to, to a retailer, which in turn sells to, a, to a, uh, uh, an end user. So this is pretty, pretty typical. Author sells a physical book copy of their book through Amazon. Amazon is your, is your retailer. The author puts the book on Amazon. Similarly, an album, you can, you know, an artist who submits their album to iTunes or a, a game company that, that's how, that puts their, uh, has a direct relationship with Steam to put their content on that, on that platform. Um, okay, and third, is, I guess, is the sort of the, the direct-to-platform model where, you, where the content owner has a relationship with the platform on which the content is consumed. So in this case, you might have... Um, you know, mobile game or mobile, any kind of other kind of mobile app to be for that matter, being sold in the App Store. Again, the content owner has a direct relationship with, with Apple, the App Store, which is both uh, a retailer and a platform. Um, magazine publisher making their issues available to Texture is another good example. Um, we found that this is among the models that perhaps is most common and sort of underwrites why we did the study in the first place is this and others are, are really emerging in some form and have challenges, similar challenges, across all the creative cultural media industries um, in that, you know, that relationship with, with your platform has, has some challenges, and I'll get into what those are in, in a minute. So uh, all the way, we've gotten through those sort of more direct models to get to what we have all sort of come to know as the VIA distributor model or the traditional, if this was going to be a menu item somewhere. Um, and basically, it's you know you sell your your content perhaps with a service provider to help package the content to a distributor who then commercializes that content by putting it to the retailer um, the, the retailers that make sense and then people buy it from those retailers. Um, our discussion is about emerging has been you know primarily about emerging models, but really they still exist and I don't want to, as they might say, throw the baby out with the bathwater, which is way more disturbing when you think about it. Um, but it is something that we need to continue to acknowledge as part of the ecosystem of how people actually get their content to the end users. Distributors still play a role. Now, mind you, the role of the distributor itself might be changing. So whereas they may have taken on more, let's say, uh, market development or audience development uh, roles in the past, perhaps that, that role is attenuating over time. So the last model that I'm going to talk about before we get into challenges is this sort of notion of a platform-driven model. Um, I think the, the, this is perhaps more, more relevant in film and TV and, and interactive digital media, particularly games, but it's where, um, where the, the content, the platform provider itself um, has an influence over the creation of the content in the first place. So a great example of this is, is again, I'll just talk about VR, for example. So if you're trying to develop something for Oculus, Oculus has a say in how you develop the content to begin with, both in terms of its technical requirements and sort of even to, the, to, to an extent, you know, um, oversight over content. So, um, so in that case, the pro you have a platform provider that actually drives the, I think it's probably missing an arrow in, if you see in the report. Uh, that links platform provider all the way back over to, to content owner. But the point being is that uh, increasingly you have the, that platform. It's almost like, you know, in the 1980s, if your television told you what, it, what, what you could put on television. Not the, not the broadcaster, not the BDU, but the television itself. Anyway, um, so what does this do? Um, so we found that we looked looked across all the cultural media industries, and I guess that's really sort of an interesting piece of exposition that I just, I, I just presented to you, but it doesn't really have a a, um, any grounding and how it might affect your business. So we looked at all the various ways that, that these emerging models might affect actual businesses operating in Ontario and basically we came up with four sort of big themes of, how, of, of challenges that this presents. The first is really a, a problem of scale and market power. So many of the cultural media, uh, I mean many, many, if not all of the cultural media and, uh, companies in, uh, in Ontario, or especially those that are owned and operated um, in Ontario, uh, aren't, you know, uh, face competition on a global scale with large, large uh, and ever larger counterparts. So in some sectors, these are, you know, like magazines, or, you know, you're, um, uh, you know, you're competing against large media conglomerates with both, say, magazine and other intellectual property. Um, but it is, uh, and I think this is sort of notion of scale when you're dealing with, um, you know, like giant platforms like Netflix as an example. Uh, 
you know, does does sort of hamper the ability of of, a, of an Ontario-based or a Canadian-based um, content uh, content owner to sort of extract a, a reasonable deal at reasonable terms. And this basically underwrites every other type of type of uh, challenge that I'm about to present, um, like discoverability, right? So if you have scale, the likelihood of being discoverable is is you know significantly greater. So and if you're distributing directly. If you are being forced to, or to be, or or have to distribute directly to a platform, or to retail, or to a retailer, or to uh, end users, notion of discoverability. If everybody else is doing exactly the same thing, it's going to be very quite challenging. And again, if you have scale, it becomes easier to do so. Um, so, for instance, you know you have a major music label can, that can effectively promote their their uh, their artists through traditional channels by exerting market market power on platforms like Spotify or retailers like iTunes. Um, yeah. Uh, so, due to the lack of scale, many um, it's also you know it's also very. Uh, why I'm making noise here? Uh, okay. Well, let's just go into the next one. I'm seeming running out of time. So, uh, the other another challenge that underwrites a lot of these uh, issues is the sort of notion of access to information, because if you're trying to target uh, end users and you be there be there directly or through a marketplace or through even through a retailer um, sorry through a platform or a retailer you want to know who that audience is and traditionally part of the the role of a, of a of a distributor has been to know where to put the content to make the most money but if you're having to do that directly then the onus of knowing about that audience and where to put the content to, to maximize its value falls upon the content owner um, and that's not Always something that those content owners have experience in doing or have expertise in doing. So that provides, um, you know, another burden on the on the, the original content owner. Uh, so this relates, of course, more to comp models one, the direct to end user, and model two, the retailer, where of course you have. Um, uh, you need access to that digital storefront. Now, it would be great if all those digital storefronts also provided that content and information for you to learn about your, your audience, but as we know, they don't always do so. Uh, so, let's see. Provide another another example. I mean, even but I'd say even in terms of in terms of uh, as I alluded to earlier, in terms of uh, where you continue to work with. Uh, distributors, it remains it can remain a challenge as distributors may not be, be engaging or willing to part with that information as much as they might have in the past, because that is then their competitive advantage over their competitor, their comp competing distributors. They they know their audience better than the next people, the next guys. And if they tell you, they probably won't tell their you know they probably won't maintain that competitive advantage. Um, and I guess the last uh, fourth. Uh, and is of fourth importance is the uh, in terms of common challenges is this notion of a um, access to, access to platforms. So it's not always the case that just because you have content to distribute that you can distribute it to whatever platform you want. Um, so as we, uh, I mean, as I alluded to a little bit in terms of the sort of I guess model five, uh, it's. You know, you can, or I guess, I guess the one the model three access uh, direct platform. Um, platforms do have a, or can exert a certain amount of uh, pressure or, or make requirements that uh, make them less accessible to uh, some content owners. So, for instance, if they require you to say um, localize your content to twelve different countries in Europe simply to get it on their platform, that that. That co the cost of that localization may make the platform cost prohibitive for a particular type of, yeah, for a particular type of content, thereby limiting access uh, for Ontario-based content owners to uh, to those sort of important platforms. Um, others are more, I mean, while others are more open, like uh, um, you know YouTube, for as an example. Uh, it tends to be that there is sort of an inverse proportionality or like a not a good relationship between the ability to get on a platform and the ability to monetize from that platform, as that we then start talking about discoverability again. All right, so these are so these these challenges are uh, sort of um, exist across to some degree all the, the distribution platforms that distribution pathways that we, we talked about earlier, but they're not the only issues to consider. Um, so, as we continue to, as I'm going to veer into our, our panel discussion, I'll put a few things on the table that um, this is where we end in our in our, in our paper. Um, 
that may help to, I guess, contribute to solving or result, or at least uh, circumventing some of these problems. And I guess one of the one of them is the the notion of the importance of brand, um, and uh, you know, known IP that will continue to grow. We feel it will continue to grow in importance. Um, so the use of these of uh, you know well-known brands can help to cut through a, a lot of a couple of challenges. So even if you don't have scale as a company, if you're using a well-known brand, then um, that makes discoverability a lot easier. So the example brought up to us here uh, was always the uh, notion of if you make something in Star Wars, it doesn't matter who made it, they'll know it's Star Wars. Um, next is the notion of uh, there's the, the what we call the growing digital channels as um, Models one and two, direct to end user and, and retail, become more digital in nature. They continue to um, erode revenue for companies that have relied on physical sales. So things are getting more digital. Even in video games, you would think it has always been digital. Not always true. Until last year, there was still a significant physical presence. Um, last, the sheer number of monetization tools. So it is increasingly the case that, that content owners are using all of the distribution models that I have previously talked about, which presents sort of management challenges uh, in and of its management and you know, organizational capacity challenges. And then of course the notion of, of this notion of niche audiences, which has underwritten a certain amount of what I've talked about. And those niche audiences are around the world, um, small and require information, require access to, to, uh, to platforms. So I've gone really fast. Um, and because I've gone really fast, I thought I'd put up all the, those <laughs> What were those models again? Um, so uh, they're going to be up here as my colleagues continue to continue to speak, and um, I will now pass it to Nadine to introduce our panelists. Thank you, Christian. Can you all hear me? Okay. Great. <laughs> um, thanks. So, so with all of that in mind, um, we want to use um, the the rest of the session to really get at how these models are playing out um, in the cultural media industries in, in Ontario and um, talk about some specific examples. And um, we're very happy to have um, on our panel Tony Walsh and Diana Hall. Um, so Tony is the company director at Phantom Compass. Uh, his career in digital media spans over 20 years, and he's played key creative roles on a number of acclaimed convergent and transmedia productions for Canadian and international clients. In 2008, Tony founded game development studio Phantom Compass and co-produced the award-winning Rollers of the Realm video game for PC and PlayStation platforms. He's currently directing Auto Age Standoff, a PC video game that combines the grit of Mad Max with the glam of Gem and the Holograms. Diane is the president and co-founder of Two for Life Media. Um, uh, and Two for Life Media Inc. is a life, life stage media company operating under the brand Two Life, and it helps millennial couples stay organized and inspired as they enter their household formation years and start planning major life events together, a wedding, moving in together, setting up their first home, and starting a family. Uh, their media properties include a suite of mobile apps for couples, website, e-newsletter, and digital magazine. In addition to Two Life, Diane has successfully launched many media properties, including taking Wedding Bells magazine into the U.S. market, Two Magazine, the Royal Wedding 2011 app, and custom publications for Macy's and Hudson's Bay. So I've given a bit of an introduction, um, but maybe you could provide a bit more detail about the types of products that your companies make, um, the end users you target, and the primary ways um, that you get those products through those users. So really, which models that Christian presented really resonate most with you and the way you currently operate? Uh, sure. So uh, we do a variety of video games on a variety of platforms, and that includes uh, video game consoles like PlayStation and PlayStation Vita. Uh, as well as PC or Windows-based video games, uh, mobile games, so iOS and uh, Google Play, and fairly recently uh, as well doing some work in VR and putting things out on the Oculus Store or the Vive Store or the Google Daydream uh, Store. Uh, so we reach a wide audience, I guess. Uh, for our original games, I guess it's probably ages 12 up. Uh, and then for service work that we do for other producers, uh, it can be from preschool uh, to sort of grown-up audiences, I guess. So, uh, yeah, wide variety on all fronts. So would you say you use multiple? Yeah, so then? it's the Steam store, the Google Play store, the App store, uh, the 
you know, every digital platform that we can get our hands on, um, but with some exclusions that I can talk about why not those ones down the road. Great. Dan? Okay, so we have um, a suite of iOS apps for couples. So our primary distribution is through the App Store. We have supplementary uh, exposure online, use the email newsletters. A lot of that is to re-engage users into our apps. Um, we originally were a print magazine, so we were more the first model of going uh, direct to end user through controlled circulation. But um, because we target millennials, we found that they were really going to more digital and uh, more to daily type content consumption. And so we really substantially changed our business to be more on iOS. So I'd say now we're direct to platform is our main uh, focus. And that's certainly presented some new challenges. Great. So, um, uh, Dan, you talked a little bit about how you've seen the distribution landscape change. What changes have you seen, Tony? Uh, geez. Uh, you know, over the last 10 years, I mean, just a huge surge of mobile uh, products and just having that power of device uh, on your person at all times, uh, being able to get content on demand uh, was not really an option, uh, except for maybe the Nintendo Game Boy <laughs> um, back in the day. So, and I mean, I guess, you know, as Christian sort of talked about earlier, real transition, uh, I'm not going to say completely away from, but certainly moving away from physical product distribution to a digital format. And that's why uh, large chains like GameStop are really hurting right now. Uh, because, and they need to adapt, you know, to, to get into digital distribution. They're a U.S., uh, actually international uh, retailer of video games, and so their business was built on physical product distribution and sales uh, and point-of-sale marketing, and now they're having to switch. They actually became a publisher fairly recently uh, for digital distribution. Um, and so I guess... It seems that you've, you've kind of been moving away from certain models as well. Or, or well, we kind of came into the industry. Uh, we've not done a physical product, uh, at least that I'm aware of. <laughs> it's possible. I, we did distribute with Walmart, actually, but it was a digital download via Walmart, which is mm -hmm. kind of interesting. But uh, yeah, I mean, we came in in the digital distribution sort of era, I guess, and haven't done physical. And um, Diane, do you want to expand on some of the distribution models that that you're, you see yourself moving away from as well? Yeah, so just um, in terms of magazines, uh, I'll just talk more generally too, is that, I mean, still there's people that love to read magazines, so I think it's really important to understand who you're marketing to, who your reader is, and therefore what the best platforms are for distributing your content. So there's certainly people that still love magazines and uh, distribute those on, on, you can distribute those on newsstands or, or build a subscriber base for a physical product. We just didn't find that was the case for our product. So we target the wedding business, which is um, very service-oriented, lifestyle-oriented, and young people. So. Um, originally, people would go to a magazine store, buy a stack of bridal magazines, and the, the challenge was to be at the top of the pile. But now they go to Instagram, Pinterest, online first, and the magazines are very much secondary. And uh, they're still out there, but there's far fewer. So we see in our segment just that traditional model not really... Going to, it's not going to be sustainable for us for the long haul. And so we had to shift to, to new ways of distributing. What we found with iOS was that we could be very focused on a particular experience, a particular customer, and, and gain an audience in the U.S. So we were early adopters of, um, like, we're the first iPad app for wedding planning in the world, and things like that have served as well. So being early and innovative and, and taking on um, new, newer um, platforms has definitely voted well, although it's been very difficult too. <laughs> so um, I think going forward, what we see is getting beyond counting on the platform for our distribution. So for example, we would want to get featured on the App Store um, we'd work hard to get featured on the App Store. That would drive downloads. But now it's more shifting towards marketing of how we're going to drive 
our downloads and, and what we need to do to, to um, make that happen. We're also moving towards um, more mobile web just for access so that we can reach more people and not be limited to just our app owners. We love the app owners because we get more data about them, but we want to be able to have um, be more easily accessible to more people. So if anything, we're going more to mobile web as well. Right. Um, and I imagine that the, the, your target audience has a wealth of content that they can choose yes. from and discoverability must be a challenge. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about um, audience development and you know, how you develop that community and, and your brand yeah. to stand out? So uh, the other thing we were down is a digital magazine, but while we produce content, we did a lot of development of tools to be stickier so that we have a lot in our apps user-generated content. So the user has to come back to view their content and therefore ours at the same time. So one was just in terms of the actual content, packaging it up with tools, so not just delivering content. And a set of tools that they didn't get anywhere else. So you, a completely unique set of tools that would be sticky for our users. So um, that's one thing that we've done. We've also aligned ourselves in terms of marketing with similar user experiences. So if you like Facebook, you probably like our app. So that's a great place to promote and, and build our audiences through uh, download um, install ads on Facebook. And I think the, but where we're going now is to align with someone and I think this really addresses the key challenges and opportunities that we spoke of here of scale and market. Um, we're a smaller business, and we want to leverage the fact that we're nimble and small with bigger companies that can't move as quickly as us. So I've often liked to play off of that scale. Um, does that make sense to people? Yeah. Where we can be really good at something and therefore of value to a big company that haven't developed that niche um, expertise yet. So we really, our next step would be to bring that value to a bigger company that could in turn become a distribution partner, more in terms of marketing, not physical distribution, I should say marketing promotion. So to drive those downloads at the app store, drive traffic to us. So I think in terms of audience development, we want to align with someone in our industry um, where we can complement one, one another. And uh, just, just one more point on that is that historically, when we look at competitive set, a lot of times you wouldn't talk to that person because you think of them as a competitor. But they are a competitor, but they're a lot bigger than us. So how can we work together and, as opposed to competing with them? And I think a great example is Google just launched their new, I can't remember what it's called, the new version of Siri in an app on an Apple device. So. You know, tech companies are really good at working together even though they're competing. So I think that's the big area we need to focus on is not look at competitors, but look at how we can work together to help be a bit more discovered and, and leverage off of their brand to, to promote our product. And so that's... So for us, uh, in terms of audience development, uh, I can use our most recent game as a little quick case study. Uh, so it's a Windows PC game. It's a multiplayer online shooting type of game. So basically like a classic type of video game that you would expect when people say video games, you're thinking shooting. Uh, so <laughs> anyway, con that content aside, we actually do a lot of sort of ancillary content development, uh, I guess would be content marketing really. So we're producing shareable media uh, that we distribute uh, through a variety of channels, uh, including the distribution platform, which is also an audience development platform. So that is Steam, uh, which is actually not specifically a games platform anymore, distribution platform. It's a software distribution platform and actually includes and encompasses now uh, the Vive uh, headset and VR uh, system. So uh, software developers who make tools um, will also uh, supply content and actually um, digital uh, uh, content, like downloadable movies, that's what I'm trying to say, blah, blah, blah. 
I feel like it's Monday, but it's totally not Monday. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, you know, it's a viable distribution platform for a lot of different forms of media. But the way that we reach our audience there is the game was put through a uh, an approval process to be able to distribute through Steam. You don't just get to put it on uh, like the App Store, even though that actually has like a week or two review period. Um, this has a green light process. Sometimes it can take months to get on. We got lucky with our last game and it was approved quickly. So this game was actually sort of pre-approved. We put it on Steam in pre-release and we can start audience development at that stage. There are community tools available on that platform, including a forum, a uh, method to do announcements to everybody who wants to wish list your game. If people wish list it, it means they've added it to a future purchase list and whenever your game updates, they get a little update about it. And then we opened up our game to uh, pre-release testing. Basically, we frame it as so-called beta testing, but really it's a way for us to validate the game concept and the gameplay with the audience prior to release so that we have time to make changes before it actually goes on for sale and gets reviewed because we learned with our last product, even though in this digital you know, situation, we can modify the product post-release and improve it. Your launch day is the title that they actually review. And so if you screwed up and there's a couple of bugs, or like in our, the case of our last video game, the end of the video game was really hard. And uh, I think it, you know, we got some dodgy reviews as a result. So we want to really hit the ground running, and we can do that with Steam on the way up to release. So in addition to Steam, we also use uh, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and now Instagram to post screenshots and video of gameplay from our game. Uh, and that engages people uh, for Every Saturday, for example, there's a hashtag screenshot Saturday, which is usually where game developers show work in progress of games that are coming out. Um, and um, I was saying to Diane earlier, like there's really, we can't really quantify what that does for us. It's really <laughs> difficult. We know how many people viewed the content. We can get metrics on those posts, but we don't actually, we can't draw a line from that to like how many people wish listed our title. Um, but one way that we can we can make assumptions or we can make educated guesses as to why we might spike in, you know, a whole bunch of people signed up to, to buy the game. And it's usually a YouTuber will talk about us or a mainstream game site will post about us. In certain cases, uh, we might do a trade show appearance or like a consumer trade show appearance. We might demo the game for like a thousand people and we might get a little bit of a spike in that case. So we use a lot of different methods prior to the actual final product even coming out. It's arguably all content distribution already. Great. So it sounds like um, you know working with a platform like like Steam, that's the the retail point, and also acts as kind of a distributor. That 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 role of the the middleman or, or the video game publisher is kind of changing in in your industry, and that's um, one of the trends um, that that one of the shifts that we identified in this study. Um, so whether that that role is disappearing or being taken on by other other parts of the value chain. So. What is a distributor anyway in this in this new landscape um, for 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 you and maybe Christian you can also speak to how that plays out in some of the other industries like music and film and TV. Oh, I mean for us, you know, it's really we would have a hard time reaching consumers directly in a way that has infrastructure around it. So I mean, although Steam takes a cut off every sale. It's comparable to any other distribution agreement, so it's fairly industry standard. Um, but there are a lot of mechanisms that it provides that we wouldn't really want to have to run ourselves. So we're not an operations company, and Steam basically handles that aspect of distribution where an unsatisfied customer now can ask for a refund on a Steam product. So it's a little weird if you imagine paying for a digital download, trying it, maybe not liking it, and then getting your money back. Uh, but actually, what that does is it helps us because people then don't leave a negative review for our product because they were satisfied by being able to return it. Mm -hmm. And so we have fewer negative re reviews, and that actually helps us. But uh, I don't know if I covered your, po your <laughs> point. But anyway, yeah, that's... Uh, uh, what am I missing? missing um, no, I think, I think you oh, covered good. it. Yeah, I think you did. Okay. Um, Diane, what, what does a distributor mean for you today? I still would say it's the App Store because we just get a, um, a quality user as opposed to someone driving by your content on the web. We're able to get the user's name, data about them in order to continue a relationship. So I would still say that the App Store gives us the highest quality 
um, audience and, and, and uh, traffic metrics. Mm -hmm. So we, we, we get more engagement, we get longer session times, we get their name, uh, email address to follow up with them. So I still would say that that channel gives us that, which is critical when you're largely advertising driven to know that you've got a subscriber base. So that's what the App Store has given us. Maybe I could add too that for Steam, mm -hmm. it actually gives us a, a way to retain customers from yeah. product to product because you can yes. make announcements in your prior products uh, community mm -hmm. section that will alert people who bought that game that you have a new one coming out. Yeah. So it can really help for long-term engagement and can help take on some of the things that publishers used to do. So publishers used to handle that stuff. Now you can kind of run it yourself with the tools that the distributor provides you with. Right. Yeah, and that's similar too with us with notifications, app notifications and alerts that we're able to use to, to prompt our users to download an update or, or come back into the app. Yeah. Uh, just to briefly on, uh, on music. Um, I think it depends on your, from the music industry, it kind of depends on your perspective. If you're the artist, the, um, you know, your, your distributor uh, is, is, is typically your label. Um, and previously that, you know, much like publishers, just kind of an analogy to, to video games, publishers used to do a lot of that stuff. Labels used to do a lot of that stuff too. And to an extent they still do, but increasingly as, as the relationship is very similar to, um, to that between like a, a developer and a, and a publisher in, in video games in that the artist providing content to your to your label labels like well where's your audience you know come to me with an audience and then maybe we'll take your content um, and so they're the the you know if you think about how many artists you see uh, music artists you see having to put time and effort into maintaining um, you know social media uh, um, you know efforts um, that's an increasingly large portion of what they do and similarly um, you know lab uh, labels are finding that they have to um, that the cost of uh, sort of all of that information and making sound decisions about that information is, is you know, somewhat prohibitive. So they're sharing between the artist and the, and the label. Um, yeah, it's the same sort of, I think it's the same sort of analogy, that, that uh, the same sort of situation. Um, I'd say, like you did very briefly, there's a lot of film and TV people in the room, so I'm not going to say too much that they don't already know, but um, one of the, the themes to draw from, from film and TV is the role of a specialized distributor where um, that knowledge of, which kind of harkens back to this sort of challenge of knowledge of the audience. Um, so insofar as you have these niche audiences around the world and the, the marketplace is increasingly global, finding, finding distributors that have a particular expertise in selling a particular kind of content to a particular kind of audience on a particular kind of platform um, seems to be how things are, are, are evolving um, so that they have, uh, you know, um, you know, a skill set for, uh, you know, for that, that, that kind of content. It's almost like niche distribu distribution um, as, a, as an emerging theme. Great. And I guess all of the other um, kind of benefits of, of, especially when that distributor role is taken on by, by the retailer of providing that data and, and supporting your efforts to get your content out there. Um, so uh, we do want to move to, to questions, um, but I just wanted to ask, what's on the horizon for you? Um, do you anticipate that your use of specific models uh, will grow or decline in the, in the coming years or any specific challenges that you see on the horizon? Biggest challenge is always discoverability and when to hit a platform. And, you know, it's a good point raised earlier that, you know, you do want to try to get in early on a new technology or a new, you know, VR despite whether or not it's going to stick around, it's, it was important to get in there and discoverability is a lot easier now uh, on that platform, for, but it's not going to last. So in another six months, it'll be oversaturated like everything else. So, so how, do you, how do you keep up with all of, all of these changes? You just got to make it your business to stay on top of every new piece of technology that comes out and don't be afraid to try new things. And thankfully in Ontario, there's support to do that. So, yeah. Okay. And I just say, staying true to your mission statement means that you can keep evolving with the technology. Like uh, I found that that's key when you're trying to evaluate whether you're going to use a channel or a platform. It's like, what is my purpose and why would I use it? So I th that's helped us navigate through a lot of change. And, and sorry, and one more thing, packaging content for that platform yep. is the second, is making sure that you're not just taking a magazine and and putting it on 
an iPad, it doesn't work as well. So always repackaging your content for that platform once you've decided that it's a good one for you based on your mission statement. Right. And that kind of brings us back to that final model that we talked about where the technology or the platform is really driving your, your content development mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Okay, so we'll, we'll turn it to um, the audience for some questions. Comments, great. Comments. Okay. Do you want to just wait for the microphone? Okay. Yeah, I'm a video game uh, developer, and I was, this is for Tony, and uh, I was wondering, uh, we're going to be uh, releasing a demo very soon to foreign publishers to gauge interest in you know localization marketing opportunities. Have you done that before? And if so, do you have any advice, uh, things I should be concerned about or whatever going into that uh, experience? Well, uh, we might want to chat after this because it's a much longer conversation, but basically in short, Everybody wants good content has been my experience in the industry. So you can go to any trade show and have any meeting. And if your content is good, somebody is going to want it. It's then figuring out what it's going to take to close the deal and all of the fine print and things that go around that. I will say for international companies, uh, there can be some real serious communication issues that they may appear to understand what you're saying. There's a lot of smiling and nodding. Uh, and even the contracts can get signed. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they actually understand. Like, you have to triple, quadruple check that you do have a mutual understanding is my biggest piece of advice. But we can chat after this. Sure. Um, OK. Hello? Oh, OK. Um, this is a question for both uh, Diane and Tony. One thing I noticed about uh, the current model compared to the traditional model is that the distribution company, a traditional distribution company, used to do a lot of the marketing and Mm -hmm. understanding of the audience. And it seems that that's on your shoulders now. How do you gain that expertise? Do you have it with it? Do you educate yourselves? Do you hire someone? I mean, how, how does that work in this current environment when it's that discoverability and audience um, development is on your shoulders? Well, for magazines, actually, we, we did have to market our products. So for us, the challenge was more um, translating all those learnings and understandings and, and techniques that we used to the new platform. So it was really, re, it was really finding the translation and of what worked there. How can we kind of emulate that here? So for us, we've always had strong marketing in-house, but we had to learn all different methods and and study a lot of data and just really self-taught and attending uh, webinars and just we we I, we're also talking about the fact we get a lot of people approaching us with app install ads or network buys and lots of people. I took a lot of those calls just to get hear what they had to offer. But at the end of the day for us, Facebook and Instagram have been the best marketing tools and the app store search ads. So kind of there's tons of options out there, but at the end, end of the day, we brought it down to the ones that had the least amount of friction between what we needed to get done. But it was a lot to learn. <laughs> yeah, so same for us. I mean, basically, we had to learn a lot on the go and going to industry events and industry trade shows was really important to us. Listening to other developers' stories about how they succeeded or failed in the markets that they were trying to address. And I guess just like you can never stop moving and never stop trying to be at that leading edge somehow and just finding out how people are using these new platforms and technologies and then how to best address that and not being afraid to fail because at least you got there first. So that's worth something. Um, But yeah, I mean, we have worked with third-party companies sometimes for marketing uh, with pretty mixed results. So it's difficult in the video game space for us anyway to find somebody that we can really solidly work with. And definitely the distributors are taking a hands-off approach as far as marketing goes. There is no curation on Steam besides a group of anointed curators that are from the community, which is its own whole controversy you can read about. But there are community curators. Your mileage will vary depending on who those are. But there's no formal curation process. 
This is uh, mostly for Diane. You spoke that you were shifting probably from the app store to uh, mobile web more. But could you just talk about how you were able to kind of keep people coming back to the app? Because I know that apps generally have like a low usability and people download them, use them once, and then never use them again. Yeah. That, that was an, that's a really good question. So um, the one good thing about apps, if you've been a magazine publisher, is that you they're very similar in that you're expected to update them every six weeks to three months. So constantly putting new releases onto the app store, and like which is similar with the magazine. You put out an issue every month or every quarter. You're on a frequency of of constantly releasing. So. One key is not to just build the app and leave it. You have to keep updating it with new features, um, uh, new UI, new new content going in there. And so there's always an update and a reason for people to come back. Um, the second was gathering their, their names so we were able to do email uh, blasts. And now with deep linking, one obstacle we hit was that but prior to deep linking, it would just send people to the storefront for the app. Now you can deep link people back into the app as opposed to going to your mobile web. So it was, has really been about, um, about getting back to people through the emails and through the app updates that's managed to create uh, that stickiness. But having said that, there's also just a reality that you have to get a lot of downloads in order to get your core group of users and that's true of anything. It's really like a direct marketing model where, yeah, 100 people are going to download it, but a lot of you're going to get your different levels of usage. And can you monetize even that first download for us? We, we, we had really long session times. And, and just like a banner ad on a website, you can still monetize that traffic, even if it is drive-by traffic. So we just tried to look at how can we, you know, retain these users, but also monetize people coming into the top of the funnel, even if they don't come back to the app. Is there another way we can monetize that traffic? Um, it was a di little disheartening when we realized not everyone's going to use it every day, but that's true of any application. So it was a challenge. Uh, question um, principally for Christian, um, the others sure. as well. But um, first of all, the uh, models that you have on the board certainly speak to the variables that are emerging. Mm -hmm. The common denominator for me is that all of them point to an end at the end user. Yeah. Uh, the question then is, where in the models does it fit, A, that end users are in and of themselves a distribution platform, uh, platform's the right word, but and particularly the emergence of reviews, um, as uh, reviews, communication, um, the fact that they influence product before brand more these days, how does that set into the model? Uh, it's, a, it's a great question. So the, 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 the sort of like um, practical question is we had to stop somewhere. Um, the, 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 the more, I guess, more involved version of the answer is that uh, the, typically that occurs, I mean, not typically, but uh, one of the main places that occurs is on the, on the distribution platform itself. So Steam is a great example where the community itself is part of the, the, the distribution platform or the, the Call it platform. Um, so you may argue the same for you know PSN or a lot, of, particularly in video games and even in spot sort of uh, in, uh, I would say streaming services as well. So recommendations from friends is the number one uh, means to uh, find new streams on uh, um, streaming platforms. And I think even. Uh, uh, this sort of discoverability on Netflix has now moved that way from the thumbs up, thumbs down, which is based on what other people with your similar viewing habits have had thumbs up, thumbs down on. So you're sort of see that um, user people using the platforms directly affecting discoverability. In terms of um, you know like. I think at some point, um, yeah, so I think that's, that's like the basic answer to your question is a lot of that occurs on platform. But then you start to get into things like Let's Play uh, if, in the video game space, which is people watching other people play video games, which confuses me, but is true. Um, <laughs> but it's, so, so it becomes a marketing vehicle, right? So it becomes part of what we would typically, so a lot of that is facilitated, you know, when it's done right, it's facilitated by the content owner as part of a marketing, as part of a marketing approach. Um, and so I would say that it's like a market, like it's a marketing channel that is also maybe part of the distribution approach. But I think for the most part, I'm going to 
conclude my ramble by pointing back to the platform and saying that's, you know, part, part of designing a, an effective distribution platform is allowing for that kind of community interaction to occur. I guess like identifying what happens after the product is released and your end users get it in where your control ends and what can be done or should be done or do you want to do after that happens because these let's play videos you know there's dozens and dozens of these for our video games we don't get a dime from that you know what i mean and some people would say well we should you should totally get money from that we can't draw a line from those let's play videos to sales of our video game we don't know how it affects sales is it an effective marketing tool i have no idea i don't know how to reach them we can't we can't control the message and we don't want to control the message because you got to let these people do what they're going to do with your content and hope that there's like a trickle down <laughs> benefit, but it's not, it's not really like a controlled marketing tool that way. You can pay for placement because basically there's no rules right now to govern. It's like payola, play my video game, here's $10,000 and they'll do a let's play and reach a million people. That's yeah, a good and, ad buy. And I think, I think like the, the, you know, it's interesting because the controversy happened when they did that is that like people started getting sued, yeah. right? Like, because they weren't, they weren't being, um, upfront about the fact that that was paid for, like for pay marketing. So people started getting sued. Um, so just to say so that yeah, the life of the product, once it hits the consumer market, you really have to figure out a strategy there and how you're gonna get involved because it probably behooves you to get involved, but you can't control it. So you just have to kind of like be there so people know where they can get the product, but not try to interfere too much. Great. I I think that's all the time we have for questions, but I think um, the panel will be sticking around maybe for a few a more few minutes, minutes um, if you have some questions. Uh, a big thank you to Tony and Diane um, for being here. Thank you all for, for coming on such a rainy day, and thanks to the OMDC for hosting us.